We think about Christmas and it's described as the most wonderful time of the year. But the first Christmas was filled with surprising angelic announcements, life-changing decisions, difficult travel destinations, overcrowded cities, overbooked accommodations. And yet all these things resulted in the most wonderful gift that has ever been given since the creation of the world. For God gave the gift of salvation to the sin-fallen world by sending his only begotten son, born in a manger so long ago. Welcome to The Cleansing Word. We invite you to stay with us as Pastor John Pinnell of Calvary Chapel Lake Villa takes us through a verse-by-verse study from God's Word. Each Monday through Friday, we'll be airing messages to encourage you in your faith that you might grow in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I hope that you enjoy this broadcast, and I'll return at the close of this teaching to give you more information about our church and how you can obtain a copy of this message. Now here's Pastor John with today's message from God's Word. Turn your Bibles, if you would, to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. Looking at the story of Christmas and So I was thinking about the first Christmases, and maybe you can remember a first Christmas of your own. It could be a memory as a child of one of the first memories that you have of Christmas. Maybe it's being married and the first Christmas with your spouse, whether a husband or a wife. I remember that first Christmas, and I remember us not having very much. It was a stretch just for two 18-year-olds to be married and living on their own and then throw Christmas into the mix and it's like, we can't afford this. But we ended up to be able to scratch out a tree, some ornaments, and 40 bucks each to spend on each other. It was like, so I didn't do well. And guys, maybe this is a suggestion to you. Um, If you only have $40, don't try to buy, you know, a dollar for every present and give 40 gifts because they're usually not that good. Just take the 40 and spend it well and wisely on one good thing. Back then, 40 bucks, obviously, a little bit more than today. But I remember those first Christmases. Maybe it's the first Christmas without a loved one. You know, you're coming to that season, and and it's a difficult one because that person has always been there for you. We think about Christmas, and it's described as the most wonderful time of the year. But the first Christmas was filled with surprising angelic announcements, life-changing decisions, difficult travel destinations, overcrowded cities, overbooked accommodations. And yet all these things resulted in the most wonderful gift that has ever been given since the creation of the world. For God gave the gift of salvation to the sin-fallen world by sending his only begotten son, born in a manger so long ago. 
So today we want to look at the firstborn son from Luke's gospel, chapter 2, verses 1 through 20. I divided this into four sections, and we first will see a royal decree, verses 1 through 3, a lowly city, verses 4 through 7, an angelic announcement, 8 through 14, and a lowly manger, verses 15 through 20. And so we read that royal decree that went forward, verses 1 through 3, and it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This census first took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. So all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. So Luke's just kind of setting up the Christmas story here for us in verses 1 through 3. He tells us about the time when the event took place, who was ruling over the world at that time. Caesar Augustus. He tells us who was the governor in the region at that time. And also he tells us about an event that caused everyone to be registered in their own city. And so there was a, a worldwide tax that was taking place. And the way that this went down was that you had to actually go back to your home city, the place where your family was originally from, for the census to be taken place. I look at this and I just envision that there were a lot of unhappy people. First of all, I don't know how many people celebrate in our country on April 15th that it's tax day. I don't see us having tax day parties, celebrations. Yeah, this was tax day, but also it was inconvenient. For me, it might mean that uh, we would have to travel down to uh, southern Illinois, a place that I have rarely been, but only on family vacations because that's where my folks came from. Or maybe they, we'd have to take it even further back. It's a worldwide tax. I know that we can trace our Pinnell lineage back to England, so that would be quite a trip. But imagine everyone had to go to their own city of origin, and so I would imagine not only overcrowded accommodation and destinations here, but people who were very unhappy about having to be taxed and having to go to and travel to the city of their origin. We find that Caesar Augustus was on the throne there. He was the first emperor of the Roman Empire, and he ruled from 27 BC to 14 AD. And it was during this time that the Mediterranean region, about 20 years, was really in relative peace. There was frontier wars going on. They were expanding the empire. But for the region of Israel, things were in what was known as the Pax Romana, or the Roman peace was taking place there. And despite these frontier wars that continued the expansion of the empire, the Mediterranean region was in relative peace. But the census, and the historians can't find information on this census, so many of the historians question whether this event actually took place. They question the truth of the biblical account that Luke had given to us. And Luke would identify the same senses in the book of Acts, Acts 5.37, from Gamaliel, who mentioned in the days of the census, he was giving argument why they shouldn't bring punishment against the apostles at that time, but he referenced the senses. The people knew about the senses. Historians don't find any evidence about it, but that doesn't mean that the Bible is wrong. 
Historians once said Pontius Pilate never existed, that he wasn't found in Scripture, and then they were digging around in Caesarea Philippi, and they uncovered a stone that had Pontius Pilate's name inscribed on it. Well, he had went out of office, and they took this piece of limestone, and they reused it in another building. They just took the engraving and turned it around backwards that no one could see it. And eventually it was discovered. But most recently, and this is just came out in the last month, that a ring was found during a dig. The dig took place after the Six-Day War back in 1968 and 1967. But they uncovered a lot of artifacts that went to the uh, Jewish Museum. And finally now they have discovered a ring that on the ring it says Pilatus. And so the name, I'm quoting here, the name Pilatus has been linked to that Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, mentioned in the New Testament as Jesus' executioner. Pilate was the fifth of the Roman leaders in Judea, apparently the most important of them. He ruled from the years 26 to 36. You can look it up. It's been in the news that they found a stamping ring. So they used to uh, mark official documents with the stamping ring. It doesn't mean that Pilate actually wore this ring. It could have been used by one of his aides, but it had a wine vessel and it was surrounded by Greek writing that has his name upon it. And so I've discovered when historians have a difficulty with the Bible, the problem is not God's. It's just that we haven't quite caught up to what the Word of God says. Just think, this ring came to light and the meaning of the ring here in 2018, they're reporting on it now. It was discovered in 1968, so it takes them a while to catch up on these things. But at a time when war brought a sense of false peace, the true Prince of Peace came to the earth. And it came to a lowly city. Verses 4 through 7 tells us, And Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth, into Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. And so it was, while they were there, the days were complete for her to be delivered. She brought forth her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling clothes, laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. So we find from Nazareth to Bethlehem, if you look on a map today of Israel, these two cities still exist today, and we can map it out. And it's anywhere from 80 to 100 miles, depending on how they would travel, how we would travel 80 to 100 miles today may not be as difficult as it was for Mary and Joseph then. We know that Mary was at the advanced stage of pregnancy. I know from women who are pretty far along in pregnancy or maybe getting past the due date, they talk about a bumpy road card ride that maybe would help the child to uh, want to be delivered, make the trip a little difficult. Well, they had a, a bumpy road. It was uh, traveled 80 to 100 miles, either uh, walking or by donkey. And we find that Caesar had commanded this thing to take place, that everyone would be registered and because they were both actually of the house and lineage of David, 
but because Joseph was the, the male of the house, they had to go to Bethlehem to be registered there. You know, it's interesting that Caesar commanded, but I believe it was God who moved upon Caesar's heart to play a role in Jesus' birth. Proverbs 21.1 tells us, The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. Like the rivers of water, he turns it whatever way he wishes. So Caesar's thinking, I'm going to tax the world, get a lot of money for my empire. And God's saying, Caesar, I think you should tax the world to get a lot of money for your empire because my son is coming and he needs to be born not in Nazareth, but in Bethlehem. Because prophecy said so. That first of all, Jesus in Isaiah 7, 14 was to be born of a virgin. Secondly, that he was to be born in Bethlehem, Micah 5, 2. Third, that he was to be born of the tribe of Judah, Genesis 49, 10. And fourth, that he was of the lineage of David, 2 Samuel 7, 11 through 16. That is just four of 330 prophecies that Jesus fulfilled at his first coming but for that pertained to his birth. He was to be born of a virgin, born in Bethlehem of the tribe of Judah, of the lineage of David. And we find that being fulfilled here in Luke chapter 2. So it's interesting looking at this some 2,000 years ago and looking at uh, Solomon's words that he penned about 3,500 years ago, Proverbs 21.1, the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord, like the rivers of water, he turns it whatever way he wishes. I think that's true to this day. This week in the United States, and I'll just throw it out there, I think prophetically some great things are happening in the world and in our nation, and there's some odd things that have quickly taken place with the American troops being drawn out of Syria suddenly, which seems very suddenly. And it's a small number. I mean, it's not like we had a huge amount of troops in Syria, but they're being drawn out. And the world is asking why. And I think the answer is the king's heart, the president's heart is in the hand of the Lord. And like rivers of water, he turns it whichever way he wishes. And some, some people might look at our president and think, it's not even logical, the decisions that he is making, and perhaps it's not. Perhaps God has something bigger in store in preparation of his son's second coming, as he did in preparation of his son's first coming. Also, the two genealogies of Jesus, we find in Matthew chapter 1, it presents Jesus as the royal heir to the throne through David, although David, we know, wasn't actually the father of Jesus, he was part of the royal line. And if there was a kingly throne at that time in Israel, I mean, I know King Herod was on the throne, but he was an Edomite, not a Jewish man. And if the house of David was sitting on the throne at that time, we discovered that Joseph would have been part of that kingly line. But here in Luke's gospel, chapter three, we are presented with a non-royal, but biological heir by right of birth, Jesus is from the lineage of David. And so both Mary and Joseph were of the house and lineage of David, and both needed to go to Bethlehem. But at this time, we find as they were there, it was time, verse 6, 
Her days were complete for her to be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling clothes, laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. And Jesus came. We just think about this for a moment. Jesus came from the heights of heaven's glory, not as a man, but as a babe. Jesus, the great high priest of God, was not clothed in priestly linen, but in swaddling clothes. Jesus, the king of glory, was not born in a king's palace, but was laid in a manger. Jesus, the creator of the world, was not welcomed by the throngs of humanity, but was birthed in seclusion in a stable of Bethlehem. Micah 5.2, but you, Bethlehem, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one who will be ruler in Israel, whose going forth are from old and from everlasting. We realize that Jesus was from the right nation, from the right tribe within that nation, from the right family, and born in the right location, the right city of Bethlehem. And I was thinking about those first Christmas. There was a first Christmas that my family and I had in 1992 when we moved out to California. And, you know, Christmas was getting close. And we, as we prepared for Christmas, going down to the shopping mall, there was just something that struck me as absolutely odd, wrong. It, it just wasn't right. As I saw palm trees decorated with Christmas lights, it just, it's like, wait a minute, evergreens, not palm trees. And then in 2004, we were in the city of Bethlehem in Israel, and it's like, wait a minute, palm trees, not evergreens. It's much like California, very dry and desert region, but like California, uh, the birth of Christ perhaps being in the winter time. So in Israel, they have their winter months. We know that winter to them may not feel like winter to us, but it plays into the story because we find in our third point, the angelic announcement in verses 8 through 14, while the emperor, a governor, a king, an innkeeper were all unaware of the Messiah's coming, his birth did not happen apart from several supernatural birth announcements. We discover as we go through the Christmas story, I've already mentioned prophecies that foresaw the coming of the Messiah like Isaiah 7, 14, Micah 5 2, Genesis 49 10, and 2 Samuel 7 11 through 16, all foretelling of the event of the Messiah's coming. But also, there were some more recent prophecies that had uh, come about. In Matthew's gospel, we find the coming of the wise men, referring to we have seen his star. That came from an Old Testament. Uh, prophecy from Numbers 24, 17, an unlikely prophet because he wasn't a prophet of God. He was a pagan prophet that had been hired to curse Israel. But every time he opened his mouth, all he could do was bless Israel. And the third time he prophesied, he referred to that star. And it could have been that these wise men from the east had read the prophecy of Balaam and came as a result of that. We have seen his star. But also we have seen the angelic announcements through Zacharias and through Mary, uh, the dreams that Joseph had had. There were several things going on. And then it tells us in verses 8 and 9. Now there was in that same country shepherds living out in the fields 
keeping watch over their flock by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone all around them, and they were greatly afraid. Again, we'll go back to the historians and the theologians. They have long argued that the shepherds would not have been tending their sheep in the fields during the winter time. Yet last month we had Roy, or the beginning of this month actually, Roy Schwartz from Chosen People Ministries taught us that the shepherds may have been Levitical shepherds assigned to watch over the lambs used for the temple sacrifices. And that makes total sense to me. In fact, I looked it up and I found this little piece about it. And the title of the article was, Who Were the Shepherds in the Christmas Story? And so I quote a couple of paragraphs from that article. The shepherds who were abiding by their flocks in the fields were perhaps watching over temple sheep that were being bred and protected to be sacrificed at the temple. These shepherds may have been men who were accustomed to preparing lambs, which symbolically represented the Messiah in their cleanness, perfection, and their sacrifice upon the altar of the temple. This gives added depth of meaning, if true, to these scriptures, which tells us that the angels came to the shepherds to proclaim the birth of the Lamb of God, the Savior of mankind, who would offer the last and ultimate sacrifice. So I found that interesting. It was a, it was a first for me. Pastor Kevin said he knew of this. I did not, or perhaps I had read of it and forgot about it, but I'd never connected the Levitical sacrifices and the need for the sheep. I mean, it was a custom at the temple every morning and every evening a lamb was offered on the altar at the temple. And this was continual. And so you would have to have then a continual supply of these sheep. And seeing an angel, well, the God's Shekinah glory shining all around them, it caused the shepherds to be afraid. And how would you be if you were in that field that night and suddenly you saw this great heavenly host? And then the angel said in verse 10 and 11, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Verse 12. And this will be the sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. So as angels do when they come, they bring God's word to God's people. First, they calm the fears of the shepherds. Then they went on to tell three specific things about Jesus and his birth, that he'd be called Savior. And I put this in your notes, Christ and Lord. Savior is zoter in the Greek. It means one who saves or one who delivers. Psalm 14, 7, Oh, that salvation of Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord brings back the captivity of his people, let Jacob rejoice and Israel be glad. Zoter, one who saves, one delivers. Oh, that salvation would come out of Zion. And salvation did come out of Zion. The Zoter, the Savior, Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Secondly, it's Christos in the Greek. It means to be anointed, the anointed one, or the Messiah. In Psalm 2, verses 2 and 3, 
Again, the kings of the earth set themselves against the Lord and against his anointed, the Messiah, against his Messiah, saying, let's break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. And so the kings of the earth, it's been going on forever. Let's get rid of this antiquated book. It's of no use, no use to us anymore. It's an old book that we just need to get rid of. And yet it is the people of this earth coming against the truth of God's word. Christ is Christos. He is the anointed one, the Messiah. And then Kyrios in the Greek is the word for Lord. It means supreme in authority or having power. But I like this, and I put this in your notes, Lord, master, or owner. Kyrios, the one who is over you. And in Luke 20, verses 42 and 43, David himself said in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord said to my Lord, the one who is over you. The sign that the angels gave to the shepherds that they find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger there in the city of David. Calvary Chapel is a fellowship of believers in the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Our greatest desire is to know Christ and to be conformed into His image by the power of His Holy Spirit. If you would like more information about Calvary Chapel, or if you would like a copy of today's message, please contact us at 847-265-0646. That's 847-265-0646. Thank you so much for joining us today. And may the Lord richly bless you as you worship Him today. And let God...